Let's just uh, bow our hearts just once again as we turn to God's word, shall we? Well, Father, we just thank you for this opportunity. And Lord, as we now look at what your word says, as Lord, we explore this incredible subject, Father, we just, just pray that you open our hearts and minds. Father, pray, take away any preconceptions we have. Lord, help us to just be honest enough just to allow you to speak to us this evening. Father, take my words, Lord, the preparation, Lord, all that aside. Lord, just speak to us now, we pray. Uh, that we may hear from the risen Jesus this evening. We ask in his name. Amen. Okay, this um, topic this evening, I think in the uh, invitation that David has sent out, it had the title as The Power of the Resurrection. And that's kind of where we're going to end up. But over uh, the last probably 10 years, I've compiled a number of talks based around the resurrection around passion week passion week if you're not sure if you've not heard that term before is typically the week that leads up to the crucifixion and resurrection of jesus and there's all sorts of people that will complain and tell you that there's uh, contradictions and in the details as you dig into it there are some things that need a little bit of unraveling but it's one of the most fascinating studies you can go into And so I I started off by some years ago looking at the subject of Passion Week itself and the details. That is incredible. We're going to touch a little bit on that later. Uh, And that led on to looking at some other aspects of the whole uh, subject, really, of the resurrection of Jesus and looking at the... Uh, the historical evidence for it, and many, many other things. And then really the the talk that David had alluded to that we did last year was really based on the power of the resurrection. And we'll talk later as to what actually that means. So this talk really is just the title, as you can see there, the greatest event in the history of the world. And I firmly believe that that is exactly what we're going to be looking at this evening. You know, there's lots of great events in history, uh, lots of things that by today's standards will make newspaper headlines. But the fact of somebody rising from the dead, I mean, that's, that's groundbreaking. I mean, that's, we don't see that. We don't hear of that. And so this is why we're going to look at this this evening. And obviously, it's a nice time of year to be studying this. We've just had Easter, or named after Ishtar. Some of you are familiar with that pagan festival. Um, but of course, the resurrection um, and what we typically celebrate this time of year. So I'm just going to go through um, some things. The first thing I just want to just lay out for us is that Paul contends... A specific historical event is the basis of Christianity. That's, that's what Paul tells us. That Christianity is rooted not in all the doctrine and the belief and the hope and all that, but it's rooted in a specific historical event. And quite simply, if that event is not true, Christianity is not true. David earlier read to you from uh, 1 Corinthians. Paul tells you there that actually, if the resurrection didn't happen, Christians of all people are most miserable. Now, I'm looking around the room. You don't look like the most miserable people. You know, there's something that we've got. If you're a Christian, there's something that's that's different. Um, some of you may know uh, my day job. I work um, in London. Um, my boss came to me a few weeks ago and just said, you know what? He said, I think I'm going to become a Christian so I could be happy like you. Now, that was quite a nice thing for him to say. And we had an interesting conversation following on from that. But, you know, it's not uncommon that people will look at Christians and say, what is it that you've got? And there is something different. There's obviously people of all sorts of faiths and that can give them some sort of buoyancy and help them through life. But there is something very radically different about the basis of Christianity. It's not based on Christ's teaching. And that takes a lot of people by surprise because many people think that Christianity is all about what Christ taught. And a lot of people will tell you that Christ was a great moral teacher. I think it was C.S. Lewis that really kind of nails that one and just said, you know, it's ludicrous. Jesus never left that option open to us. 
Jesus was not a great moral teacher. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And as C.S. Lewis kind of concludes, either Jesus was a madman or he really was the Son of God. You're not left with any other options. Somebody that goes around claiming that they're God. I mean, we've seen it. I mean, some of you remember David Icke and some of these other characters that have claimed all sorts of divine power and so on. You know, we dismiss that. We laugh at those kind of things. But that's what Jesus did. And either Jesus really was deluded because he went to the cross claiming that he was the son of God. He really believed it. Now, you know, either that was true Oh, he really was deluded. And the whole basis of Christianity was just, just, just a farce. And we'll look this evening to show that that clearly is not the case as we go through. But, you know, Christianity is not based upon the teaching of Jesus, on his character, on the miracles that he did, but on one specific event that occurred in a garden some 2,000 years ago. And that's what we're going to be looking at. Josh McDowell, some of you may have heard of Josh McDowell. He has written a, a wonderful book called uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He was a skeptic. He set out to disprove Christianity. Some of you may be in that position. You may be questioning, is this true? And you may have you know, tried to, to look at ways of disproving Christianity. Certainly many people have tried to do this. Interestingly, most people that try to do that, if they go far enough, become Christians. And I find it quite interesting that the more you start to research Christianity and the basis of Christianity the more you come to that realisation that this is true. This isn't just some fable. Peter, in the New Testament, in First Peter, um, speaks about the fact that we, we've not followed cunningly devised fables. This isn't just some made-up story. Josh McDowell says, Everything that Jesus Christ taught, lived and died for depended upon his resurrection. A man by the name of uh, B. Shelley, he wrote a great book, uh, Church History in Plain Language. It just takes you through the history of Christianity and so on. Uh, He says, 1 Corinthians fixes belief in the historical resurrection of Jesus as the indispensable basis of salvation. That's it. It starts there. It ends there. If that event didn't happen, then the rest of it is meaningless. Another quote by Joshua McDowell, he says, All but four of the major world religions are based on mere philosophical propositions. Of the four that are based on personalities rather than a philosophical system, only Christianity claims an empty tomb for its founder. Abraham, the founder of Judaism, died about 1900 BC, but no resurrection was ever claimed for him. The original accounts of Buddha never ascribed to him any such thing as a resurrection. In fact, in the earliest accounts of his death, we read that when Buddha died, it was with the utter passing away, in which nothing whatever remains behind. Joshua McDowell carries on and says, Muhammad died on June the 8th, 632 AD, at the age of 61, in the city of Medina, where his tomb is visited annually by thousands of devout Muslims. All the millions of Jews, Muslims and Buddhists agree that their founders have never come up out of the dust of the earth in resurrection. There is a very, very profound difference between Christianity and any other religious belief or system in the world. Joshua Dow quotes from Theodosius Harnock. He says, uh, where you stand with regard to the facts of the resurrection is, in my eyes, no longer Christian theology. To me, Christianity stands or falls with the resurrection. And again, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says. So what we're going to do this evening take you on a little journey if we can we're going to look first of all kind of the testimony of history and we're going to look at some people that have delved into this before uh, we're going to look at Jesus' own testimony because that's really quite significant and we'll talk about that in a moment we're also going to look at something that i think is fascinating and this is what god attributes uh, to himself as a, a unique attribute and that's the ability 
to record history in advance. You know, we're, we're kind of familiar with the idea of um, predictions. You know, we, we predict the weather, and normally they get it wrong, don't they? Uh, they're saying we're going to have a heat wave, and I'm sure that by Wednesday we'll be soaked and things. But, you know, we, we predict things, and it's based upon some sort of information, isn't it? You know, and we may be right or wrong. It, it depends on how good the information is that we're basing it on. The Bible doesn't deal with prediction. The Bible deals with prophecy. Prophecy is very different. Prophecy is history that's just been recorded in advance. Because God is outside of time. So he knows what's going to happen before we get there and has recorded it in the pages of the Bible. And when we look at that in regard to the resurrection, it really is quite amazing. We're talking about some of the eyewitness accounts. I'm going to take you through some very interesting things uh, that we can observe um, from the whole uh, narratives surrounding the resurrection that we find in the Gospels. We talk also about the testimony of the Roman guards. You know, we're familiar with the, these guards that were placed on, on duty at the tomb. And we'll talk about that for a moment. But also something else that's very interesting. About 150 years ago, we discovered something that the early church were very well aware of. And we'll talk about that um, in a little while. But the testimony of Pilate. Then the transformation of the disciples. You know, we go from this group of individuals who are very, very frightened. They're hiding behind locked doors. They end up turning the world upside down. The world is a very, very different place because of effectively what started off as 11 frightened guys and their friends and the ladies that were associated with them. You know, that small group of people who initially were fearful of being captured by authorities suddenly dramatically change and we'll talk about that and then just to conclude the witness of someone who's actually met the risen jesus and so we'll get there in a while so that's where we're going to go so first of all uh, the testimony of history i just want to read you some quotes lord lindhurst 1772-1863 recognizes one of the greatest legal minds in british history he was very respected he wrote this i know pretty well what evidence is and i tell you such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. This is somebody that knew what evidence was. And looking at the evidence that we have for the resurrection, his conclusion was, this happened. Again, a quote from Joshua Dowie. He says, after more than 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I've come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men or... It is the most fantastic fact of history. And of course, his conclusion is the latter. He was asked, Professor McDowell, in one of his uh, sessions with his students, is why can't you intellectually refute Christianity? And Joshua McDowell's answer was this. He said, for a very simple reason, I'm not able to explain away an event in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe, if this evening you're not a Christian, I challenge you to think about that. You explain the resurrection of Jesus. You explain what actually happened. There's a lot of information both in the Bible and outside the Bible. You dig into that and I'm sure if you do it, you'll come to this conclusion also. Sir Edward Clark said this, As a lawyer, I've made a prolonged study of the evidence for the events of the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I've secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. Inference follows on evidence, and a truthful witness is always artless and disdains effect. The gospel evidence for the resurrection is of this class, and as a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts that they were able to substantiate. History also records that there were two young men 
by the name of Gilbert West and Lord Littleton. Uh, they went up to Oxford. They were friends of Dr. John- Dr. Johnson, of uh, dictionary fame, and so on, uh, and also Alexander Pope. They were in the Swimmer Society, uh, and they were determined to attack the very basis of the Christian faith. Littleton settled down to prove that Saul of Tarsus was never converted to Christianity. That was his objective. And West decided that he wanted to demonstrate that Jesus never rose from the tomb. And of course, for skeptics, they thought this is going to be easy. Well, they went away and sometime later they met to discuss their findings. Both were a little sheepish, for they had both come to similar and disturbing conclusions. Littleton found on examination that Saul of Tarsus did become a radically new man through his conversion to Christianity. And Wes found the evidence pointed unmistakably to the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. Once again, people that have looked at this, that have really spent time digging into the evidence and the information we have, have all come to this conclusion that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Now that has impact. Again, think of all the events that have happened in the history of the world. We're talking about somebody that actually rose from the dead. You know, it's interesting because... Sometimes people will challenge Christianity and they say, you know, well, if Jesus was who he says he was, why do we still have poverty? Because Jesus didn't come to solve the problem of poverty. And people say, well, why do we still have sickness? Well, Jesus didn't come to solve the problem of sickness. You know, and people will ask other questions. Why is there all the problems we see with conflict and everything else going on in the world? Well, Jesus didn't come to solve the problems of conflict and so on. Jesus came to solve the problem of death. That is the biggest problem we all face. And that's the one thing that Jesus came to solve. And he did it conclusively. So, Jesus' own testimony. And this is really interesting because a lot of people that will look at this tend to forget... That prior to the crucifixion, Jesus himself declared and claimed that he was going to rise from the dead. Let me take you back to the autumn winter of about AD 31. And by the way, for various reasons, and I'm happy to discuss it if you want to sometime, I believe that the crucifixion actually took place in AD 32. There's a number of uh, historical reasons why I believe that to be the case. Typically, traditionally, people tend to think of AD 33. But uh, I think AD 32 was the year for a number of reasons that I think we can verify. But... So that being the case, in the autumn and winter of AD 31, so this is now the autumn leading up to then the following spring when Jesus would have been crucified. And up in Caesarea Philippi, which is in northern Israel, Jesus is there at this place where the Romans typically would have gone on holiday. It was like the Vegas of uh, the Roman Empire at that time. And uh, they were all there. And Jesus is there with the disciples. There's all sorts of attractions there. And Jesus says to them, who do you say that I am? That's this really telling question to the disciples. He's been with them now for some time. And verse 16 of Matthew chapter 16 says, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, Peter has spent enough time with Jesus to have come to this conclusion. But interestingly, Jesus then, verse 20, charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Doesn't that seem a little odd to you? You know, surely Jesus wanted people to know that he was the Christ, the Messiah. Well, there's a very important reason, and we haven't got time to go into it in detail this evening, but there's a very important reason that Jesus kept playing it down. You remember right at the start of Jesus' ministry, the miracle that takes place in Cana in Galilee, where Jesus turns the water into wine? He doesn't want it to be publicized. What does he say? My time is not yet come. 
You see, Jesus was working to an agenda that no human being was dictating. We read in verse 21 of Matthew 16, from that time forth. It's a really key point in the Gospel of Matthew. This is a turning point. It says, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. Now just think about that. This is prior to the events taking place. Jesus is already speaking of the things that are going to happen. Now, some people will say, oh, well, then Jesus just engineered it. Really? How many of those things could Jesus actually have engineered? You know, he says that he was going to suffer of the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and raised again the third day. And repeatedly, Jesus makes this claim. As they come down country, they end up at Galilee uh, a little while later. And while they abode at Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men. I mean, Jesus couldn't you know, make that happen. That was somebody else. This, of course, we know it was Judas. And there was a whole bunch of reasons that conspired to make this whole event take place. That Judas then betrays Jesus. And he says, and they shall kill him in the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. They didn't really understand. This was just a, a strange things that Jesus was saying to them. They didn't quite understand what he was saying. Of course they look back and it makes sense. But Jesus is making it very clear that the third day he's going to be raised from the dead. Now again I highlight the fact that this is prior to these events taking place. And Jesus is saying that he's going to be raised again from the dead. We're going to jump to John's Gospel, chapter 11, and just look at something there that's quite significant. And this is the final straw. You'll see why I say that in just a moment. You see, the countdown had begun. Up in Caesarea Philippi, that's where Jesus says, well, we see from this time forth, Matthew records, that's when we start this journey down to Jerusalem. So Jesus now comes near to Jerusalem. But what was it that had brought him there? There was a very specific event that had brought Jesus down to Jerusalem. And interestingly, we find that it was his compassion for one who was dead and buried. Now, it's very interesting because that speaks of you and I. The book of Ephesians talks about the fact that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We were without Christ. We are outside of the commonwealth and the promises that have been given to Israel. We had nothing. But it was Jesus' compassion for us that effectively led him to Calvary. But in this case, it was Lazarus. Who had died. And Jesus comes down because of his compassion for this one who had died and was buried, and to declare himself as the resurrection and the life. It's a very specific event. It's very interesting. Let's just look at the, the text. We read in verse 18 of John chapter 11. Now, Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. So Lazarus has died at this point. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou had been here, my brother had not died. Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So she missed what Jesus was trying to get at. And Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Now that on its own is enough to make you realize that you either have to take Jesus as he said he was, the son of God, or you dismiss him as a lunatic or whatever else. Because to make that statement, to say, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, he that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. What an incredible statement that is. You know, 
Anybody that's ever been to a funeral will have probably heard those words being spoken. Verse 26 carries on. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asks. Then they took away the stone. Just jumping here to verse 41. Then they took away the stone from uh, the place where the dead was laying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I know that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it. That they may believe that thou hast sent me. This is an incredible test of whether Jesus really was who he said he was. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Just an incredible scene. You just imagine here. Suddenly, they're all waiting. And probably the skeptics are going, yeah, this will be great. And suddenly they see this individual wrapped in these grave clothes. It says, then he that was dead came forth bound, hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus said unto them, loose him, let him go. You know, just imagine that call. Go on, you just go and take those grave clothes off. I mean, how many people would have been like, yeah, let's let's, let's just wait and see what happens here. Because I'm not going to touch that body yet. Because it must have been a really surreal experience. But we're told in verse 45, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary, and had seen the things which Jesus did, Believed on him. I mean, this is an incredible event. They are witnessing somebody being brought back from the dead. Now, of course, in Lazarus's case, he's brought back with the same kind of body and frame that he'd had previously. Lazarus, no doubt, would have gone on. He would have died again at some point as he got frail or whatever in his life. We're not, his death isn't recorded for us. We know the Jews wanted to kill him after this event. Um, Jesus, when he is raised again, is raised with a very different body. We'll maybe mention that later. But we read verse 46. Some of them... Uh, went their ways to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus had done, or what things Jesus had done. And they gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees, uh, a council, and said, what do we, for this man does many miracles. It's like, how are we going to suppress this one? How are we going to deal with this? They didn't want people to uh, be following after Jesus. It was bad for them. And this is why, because verse 48 says, if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And there you go. That's the key point. You see, for the Jewish leaders, they were aware of the prophecies that spoke of when the Messiah would come, he would deliver Israel. He would set them free from their enemies. In fact, you've only got to look back at the beginning of Luke's gospel and you see an incredible um, prophecy that's given by Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Speaking of the Messiah who was going to come, that he was going to save Israel from their enemies and for all those around about them that would like to destroy them. Very interesting in today's climate, but you see, this was the underlying issue here. And they were concerned, the Jewish leaders, that this Jesus who was doing these supposed miracles could end up with such a following that it could lead to an uprising against Rome. And of course, everything was nice and comfortable at the moment. You know, Rome were there, they were giving the Jews enough freedom to carry on with their sacrifices and to lead their religious lives. You know, they were happy to take taxes from them. You know, but Israel were allowed to function as an independent nation in a sense. And of course, the thought of suddenly having all that taken away was just too much for these religious leaders of the nation. In verse 49, we read, And then one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider it that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. So this is his 
perspective that you know look we're much better let's just get rid of jesus it's better that this one individual is got rid of put out the way than the whole nation end up in a far worse situation with rome see just as an aside this also totally undermines the view that's held by muslims because they will tell you and i speak to many of them that it wasn't jesus who died on the cross well, hang on, understand the whole reason that Jesus was crucified. You see, we look at the crucifixion from a gospel perspective, we know that Jesus died for our sin. But from the Jews' perspective, that wasn't what they were doing. They wanted to put this individual to death because they were fearing this potential uprising. That was why they wanted Jesus out of the way. They were absolutely sure they wanted to get the right person. There was no chance, as far as they were concerned, that they might mix it up and somebody else might get selected instead. You know, they knew who they wanted and why they wanted him. And of course, the whole problem that the the Muslims have is that Jesus himself said that he was going to be crucified. So there's a number of issues that they have to try and address. And they, they struggle. They can't answer them. Verse 51 of John 11 says, And this spoke he not of himself, this Caiaphas now, um, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Now, this is an editorial comment that John puts in. Because he says, although Caiaphas said that, what he didn't realize was the import of what he was saying. That Jesus really would die as one man for the whole nation. And not just for the nation of Israel, but for everybody who would eventually come to believe the children of God, we're told. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the, among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. So we've now got to this point, the Jews want to put Jesus to death. Now, to death, you, you'll find that they didn't want to do it during the festival period, the feast that was about to occur, the feast of Passover, because it was a time, one of three occasions in the year, when Jerusalem was just absolutely overwhelmed with people that would be coming there to offer their sacrifices as had been required by the law of Moses. So the last thing they wanted to do was have a big publicity thing and everything else and you know, just cause uproar by arresting Jesus, who was very popular, of course, with many people. So they wanted to try and do it quietly and at the right time. Of course, Jesus has a very different plan. You see, it is about timing. For them, they didn't want to do it during the feast. For Jesus, well, you'll see. You see, Jesus withdraws because he knows that there is a specific time, a specific day, a specific hour. In fact, it's very interesting if you look in John's Gospel, all the way through, you get Jesus saying, don't tell anybody. My hour is not yet come. See you tell no man. After miracle after miracle, see you tell no man. And then suddenly you get to a point in John's Gospel in chapter 12 where he says, the hour is come. What hour was that? What day was that? Well, it was a day that had been prophesied by Daniel over 500 years beforehand. In fact, it was 173,000 880 days to the day from a prophecy that Daniel had received from the angel Gabriel from a starting point when the walls of Jerusalem were starting to be rebuilt from that point to the time that Jesus rode in on Palm Sunday it was a defined period and it was the very day Palm Sunday that Jesus then said now and the significant thing about that day it's the only day in Jesus entire ministry where he presents himself to Israel as their king he rides in on the donkey. Yeah? If you look when Solomon is crowned king, 
And you find that Solomon goes out and rides on the donkey. Now, typically a king, if they were in time of peace, they'd be riding on a donkey. If they were in time of war, they'd ride on a horse. Interestingly, when Jesus comes the first time, he rides on a donkey. When he comes back at the second coming, he rides on a horse. So we see in this whole raising of Lazarus, an incredible model that's laid down. Because ultimately, it was the raising of Lazarus that directly led to the crucifixion of Jesus. For Lazarus to be raised to new life, Jesus would have to die. Again, you see the parallel in our own lives. For us to be raised to new life, Jesus would have to die. So Lazarus becomes a model, in a sense, of this whole thing. So again, Jesus' own testimony. He said he was going to do it. The whole thing is set up. Jesus engineers the circumstances. Now, this whole idea of history before it happens. This is remarkable. And there's so many things that we could look at uh, in regard to this. We could look at the model of Abraham and Isaac that we read about in the book of Genesis, chapter 22 and chapter 24. You know, the situation where Abraham, as a father, is told to take his son, his only son. Oh, I thought he had Ishmael too. Yeah, he did. But from God's perspective, he's only counting Isaac, who was the one, the child of promise. So take your son, your only son, and there's to go and offer him on a mountain. This place that we know as Mount Moriah. You and I know it as Calvary. The same mountain, the same place. Now Abraham goes to this place. And of course, rather than offering up his son, God at the last minute stops him. Because it's a test of faith for Abraham. But also, Abraham realizes he's acting out prophecy in advance. And God at that point says, in fact, it's Isaac that asks a question to Abraham. He says, you know, we've got the wood and the water. He says, but where is the offering? Where is the lamb? And Abraham responds and says, God will provide himself the lamb. Not will provide a lamb for himself. God will provide himself the lamb. And of course, Jesus, the son of God, comes, provides himself. When we look in John's gospel, when Jesus steps onto the scene, that question that had been pending for 2,000 years is answered as John the Baptist says, behold the lamb. You see, Abraham ended up offering up a ram. So that was never answered at that time. And we see the whole of this situation with Abraham and Isaac just being a, a model, in a sense, in advance of everything that would take place. You know, the father allowing his son to be offered up. This very spot that it takes place. All of these things. There's another model, of course, we could explore. We could look at Jonah, who Jesus himself refers to as being a model. Three days, three nights uh, in the belly of the, the great fish, the whale. Interesting debate on that one. We could talk some other time. But again, a model recorded in Scripture before it happens. Before the events of the Passion Week take place. But then we've got the model that's hidden in the feasts of Israel. This is the one I just want to briefly take you through. I only take about an hour and then we get back on track. No, just joking. Okay. That is a, a plan of Passion Week, okay, which um, I will make available to anybody that wants it afterwards. I'll send you a link and you can uh, have it and download it and print it and do whatever you want with it. I'll just talk you through the events because this is just absolutely incredible. As you see everything fit together and work together. So... We start at this point here. Jesus arrives. This is the Sabbath. Um, they're not allowed to travel very far on the Sabbath. But as it gets to the evening, for the Jews, the Jewish day begins in the evening. So we get to this point here. And this is where in John 12 we see that Jesus arrives at Bethany. Now that's where Lazarus uh, was and so on. And they celebrate an evening meal together. And then we find it's the very next day that we have this triumphal entry as Jesus comes into Jerusalem the very day where he says, my hour is come and so on. We mentioned that a moment ago. So this is the, then in the Jewish calendar, this will be the 10th day of the month. Um, interestingly enough, if you look at Exodus chapter 12, you're given lots of really interesting information there. If you've got a Bible, just turn to Exodus chapter 12. 
Let me just show you something that really is quite amazing. Okay, Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. And of course, this is Israel in Egypt. And we read, And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be to you the first month of the year to you. And then he says, verse 3, Speak you unto the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of the month they are to take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And then verse 4 just gives a little bit more detail. And then just jumps on to verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Now doesn't that speak of Jesus? And we're told it should be a male of the first year. You should take it out of the sheep or out of the goats. And verse 6. And you shall keep it unto the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Now that word in in the Hebrew is a Hebrew word bayan. It means between. Now, typically the Jews did celebrate their Passover meal in the evening, but they're given a 24-hour window in which to celebrate this, this or offer this, this sacrifice. Now, the reason I'm showing you that is because Jesus is taken effectively as a king on the 10th day of the month. And you'll see that on the 14th day of the month, just as according to the rules regarding the Passover, Jesus is offered as a Passover lamb. Okay, we'll come back to that in a minute. So we get to the, this is the, the Sunday then. Jesus goes in to the temple, turns the money changers tables over and the priests are there. They get very, very cross about the event. Then we get to the next day. In fact, they go out in the evening. Mark's gospel actually is really helpful because it gives us and the next day and in the evening and on the morrow and so on. So you kind of, you can track it through very easily with the fig trees cursed and so on. At that point, we then get on to the Tuesday, and again they come back, they see that the fig trees all withered and so on at that point. Uh, but Tuesday is very interesting because Tuesday is the day that they, they come out from looking around at the temple, and uh, the disciples comment on the stones and so on, and Jesus then spends a long time, we have it recorded in Matthew 24 and 25 and elsewhere in uh, Luke's Gospel and also in Mark's Gospel, the events that we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount of Olives. Okay, The Olivet Discourse is the, the title that's often given to it. And it's really Jesus' explanation to the disciples of what is going to happen. Now, I just find that really fascinating because if you knew you had two days left, what would you tell the people you loved? You wouldn't waste the time talking about trivial things, would you? You would tell them things that are important. And we find that Jesus talks about something that really is very important. Now, sadly, a lot of the church dismiss prophecy and they'll tell you it's not important. Well, I would say Jesus said that it's very, very important because he includes it here at a very, very key stage of this week. In that evening, though, as it becomes the, the new day in the Jewish calendar, this is when Mary pours that costly ointment, that costly perfume on Jesus' feet. Okay, Martha's so busy about uh, her serving and everything else and doing things. And sometimes as Christians, we get so busy doing things, we forget actually that we should be serving him by our lives, by our attitude, by loving him. It's not just about what we do. You know, you may not realize, but God doesn't need your help. You know, it's a little bit like, you know, you, you get a, a child. I've got three daughters and sometimes, you know, I'm doing something to go and they try and help me, you know. It's a little bit like that with us and God. God doesn't need our help, but graciously he allows us to be involved in the things that he's doing. Well, this evening, this ointment, uh, costly perfume is poured over Jesus' feet. Judas is there. He's the one, the treasurer. You know what treasures are like. Don't think we can spend that, can we? You know, no, we, we can't buy anything for the ministry because we've got to save it for the work of ministry. Yeah, isn't it? Anyway, um, and then Judas then goes off. He's so enraged by this, he goes and speaks to the chief priests and so on, and uh, you know the thirty pieces of silver 
We then get to the next day. This is interesting because it's the day of preparation. Because this day is, for the Jews, their Passover day. So we get to this point here and it's now the day where they're starting to get things prepared. And in the evening, for the Jews, it then goes on when they would celebrate as it becomes the 14th in the Jewish calendar. It was in the Egyptian calendar, by the way, that will still be the 13th. Um, unlike if you're Egyptian. But for, for the Jews, it becomes the 14th. And this is when Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. Some people have kind of got very confused. How could Jesus celebrate the Passover and be the Passover? Yeah, well, it's because in the evening he celebrates the Passover. And then we have this wonderful portion recorded for us in John's Gospel. Where uh, Jesus then, we have a number of chapters, Jesus ends up praying for the disciples, speaking about what's going to happen when he goes away, that the Holy Spirit will be sent. And then they go out to the Mount of Olives, uh, they sing some songs, but then they're very sleepy, the disciples. And Jesus is there, he's praying to the Father. Three times he asks if this cup can be taken from me. And then eventually the guards arrive, they arrest Jesus. That's interesting as well because they say... Jesus, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he just says, I am. If you look in your Bibles, you may find I am he, but he's normally in italics because it wasn't actually what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am. It's the same response, it's the same individual speaking as spoke at the burning bush when Moses is there. And Moses is before God and God reveals his name to Moses. I am the self-existent one, effectively. And Jesus pronounces his name and all these guards, anything up to 600, it's it's assumed, just fell over. I mean, shields and spears and everything, everything, a commotion. Eventually, they all pick themselves up. Jesus is arrested and then Jesus goes and this night endures three illegal trials by the um, uh, the Jewish leadership and then has to endure some uh, more trials by the Roman uh, authorities. But eventually, the next day, Jesus in the morning is taken out and he's taken up to this, this place, to Calvary. Uh, also, we refer to this place as Golgotha. And there Jesus is crucified at nine o'clock, put on the, on the cross with two thieves either side and stays there for six hours until three o'clock. We'll come back to that. And then we go on to the next day. Well, now, this is a really important feast day. Now, the Jews have a number of days and certain feast days you can do some work. And other feast days you can do no work. And this day is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And you can read about this. Uh, Leviticus 23 is a chapter that gives you lots of details about the feasts and so on. And there's, there's elsewhere in Exodus and, and there's some numbers as well. So, um, But this is why they get Jesus' body, they put it in the grave, but they can't really anoint it as they want to. And this is why the women on the first day of the week come back because they want to finish off this job. But because it's getting to sundown and they're not allowed to do any work whatsoever... They have to get Jesus' body in the tomb, and it's done. So then we get to this day, as I say, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Jesus spoke, didn't he? Do you remember? About unless a grain of wheat dies and falls into the ground, it it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bring forth much fruit and so on. So this is the day also that we'll find in a while that the uh, leaders of the Jews go to Pilate. We're going to come back to that in a while as well. And then we get to this Saturday Sabbath, a regular Sabbath. So we have, in a sense, two Sabbaths, both the 15th and the 16th, where no work is permitted. So, of course, the women couldn't have come to the tomb on either of these two days. So the very first opportunity that the women had to have come to the tomb would then be on the Sunday morning. Okay, and that becomes, for us, Resurrection Day. Now, if we just look at this in this period of time, okay, we've got our first night there. We've got our first day there. Second night there on the Friday night, the second day on the Saturday, we've got our third night on the Saturday night, and then Jesus rises on the third day. Three days, three nights, there's no problem. 
You don't have to be particularly good at maths to figure that out. Okay, a lot of people uh, uh, kind of gone with the whole traditional idea that you know Good Friday that Jesus died on the Friday. No, he didn't. And you can see from this model because we know that Jesus rose on the feast of first fruits as well. Okay, and that's referred to in scripture. So everything maps out, everything fits perfectly. But the really important point that I want to try and highlight here is what we read in First Corinthians fifteen. Paul tells us what the gospel is. Okay, we use this term gospel; it just means good news. Paul says this, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. And this is what he says the gospel is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Feast of Passover. Christ died as a Passover lamb according to the scriptures. All those scriptures that for 1600 years or so have been recorded in the, the Jewish uh, Torah, in the, the venerated Torah, that Christ died according to the scriptures, was buried Okay, on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as it becomes the evening. And that he rose again the third day, again, on the Feast of first fruits, according to the Scriptures. I mean, this is incredible. You know, when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, you see that all these minute details are all being fulfilled. There are so many things being fulfilled in this one week and in these few days. It's breathtaking as you dig into it. There's far more that we could go into. But hopefully that's enough for you to just to start to see that with, when we're talking about the resurrection, there's far more to this than just, well, is it possible kind of thing. You know, all these things were foretold hundreds of years. And in some cases, uh, you know, 1500 years or 1600 years before the events took place and were laid down with these kind of models. Okay, well, just to move on to some eyewitness accounts. I want to use Matthew's gospel as a guide through some of these things. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Okay, so we get to the point, Jesus has been on the cross now um, for this uh, six hours or so. Matthew 27 verse 50 is where I'm starting here. This is our starting point. We move forward. Verse 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Matthew is giving us some historical information about events that took place at that time. Do you know how difficult it would be to fabricate this and then send it around to people that knew? You know, how many of you have ever experienced an earthquake in this country? Yeah, a couple. I remember some years ago, I used to live down in Kent, there was an earthquake, um, very minor tremor, uh, just in the English Channel, and uh, Folkestone, which is down the road from where I used to live, um, there was a number of houses that tiles fell off and all sorts of things, and it was very minor. I remember that event. But, you know, nobody would be able to convince me that, you know, 10 years ago, do you remember that earthquake? What earthquake? You may remember there was, uh, a year or two ago, there was a tornado up in Birmingham, wasn't there? We remember those things. But you know, nobody could just fabricate those kind of things and expect people to go, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. It didn't happen. You know, Matthew's talking about something here that was very easy to verify or not. But the other thing that's mentioned here is about this veil in the temple. Josephus, a Jewish historian who worked very much uh, for the Romans as a kind of historian for them, he tells us that this was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. This was no small little kind of cloth that was hung up. According to Josephus, it was woven as thick as the span of a man's hand. I mean, you look at that, that's a pretty thick piece of material. Estimated weight was around five tons. And also, Josephus says that horses tied to each side couldn't pull it apart. It was that strong a piece of material. 
the way it had been woven together. And this was the, this piece of material that divided the inner part of the temple from the Holy of Holies. This veil that was there. Now, of course, there's a spiritual reason as to why it's torn in, in half, because it effectively the way is then made into the holy place. And the writer to the Hebrews makes it very clear and kind of unpacks that a bit more for us. But this itself was an incredible event. The other thing to realize at this point is um, that it occurs at 3 p.m. Uh, or so on, as Jesus is dying, the evening sacrifice will be commencing in the temple. And so many priests would have been there officiating at the time. And Acts, the book of Acts confirms that many priests also came to the faith. As a result of seeing these things, imagine standing there and suddenly the noise of this cloth just ripping. And the Jewish Talmud also records an earthquake in Jerusalem about 40 years before the temple was destroyed. So these events are corroborated that we have recorded by Matthew. Just incredible things going on. And we're also told, and the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now again, Matthew's writing this to people that would have been alive to obviously read his report and see these people. I mean, you can't make that thing up and expect any credibility whatsoever. If that didn't happen, Matthew would have very quickly been discredited. Verse 54, now when the centurion and they were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly saying, truly this was the Son of God. The other thing to remember here, that it had been supernaturally dark on the earth for three hours at this point. You know why? Well, because our sin, everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, was all being laid upon Jesus. And God the Father turns his face away. That's why the light goes out. You know, this isn't an eclipse. You know, remember the eclipse the other week? Didn't last three hours, did it? Eclipses don't last that long. This is something that was supernatural. What must they have been thinking in Jerusalem? For three hours, it's dark in the middle of the day. That would have been very eerie. I do remember um, the last eclipse we had some years ago now. Um, And it was a greater effect than the one we've just had. But it was really quite eerie because all of a sudden, all the birds stopped singing. Yeah, you may have experienced that kind of thing. It was really quite strange. And then all of a sudden, as the moon passes, the light you know, comes back on, as it were, um, suddenly everything kind of gets back to normal. For three hours, what would it have been like? You know, there's an earthquake going on. All these kind of things taking place. You know, these are events, historical events, that have been recorded for us and corroborated by external sources as well. And he says, truly, he feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. That's a testimony of somebody who has no desire to promote Christianity. But then we read, when the evening was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body be delivered. Now, we've probably read that. If you've read the Bible, you've probably read that a number of times. Interestingly enough, some victims of crucifixion can actually last days. The longest recorded was 13 days. Imagine, just in that condition. But interestingly, the shortest one on record is 32 hours. You see, Pilate would have been absolutely stunned when they came to say, can we have the body of Jesus? They said, well, when he's dead, yeah, sure. They said, well, he is dead, he's died. Already? You see, it was so quick, they weren't expecting Jesus to have died that quickly. But Jesus made a comment saying, no man takes my life. 
Jesus gave up his life. He was in control of the whole thing. He was there long enough for the wrath of God to be poured upon him. And then it was done. And Jesus cries out to telestai. It's a Greek word. It just means paid in full. Also to fulfill a prophecy, not a bone of Jesus was broken. Because typically what they would do with victims of crucifixion to speed up the process, they would break your legs. Now the reason for that is because although you'd have typically your uh, feet would be pierced by a nail, the only way you could really breathe was like pushing up so you could take a breath because obviously your arms are outstretched and so on. But by breaking your legs, what would happen is you would suffocate effectively. So that's why they would do it. But they come to Jesus. Jesus is already dead, so they don't break any bones in his body. Well, Jesus couldn't have arranged that. Not in the way that, you know, this is not fabricated. Just comments about this individual. As I say, we've often read these things, but, you know, this man was notably wealthy. Matthew tells us that. But he was also held in very high regard. This was no just, you know, curious onlooker. We're actually told in Mark 15.43, he's called Honourable Counselor. Now, if you delve into some of the commentaries, you'll find that only 14 such men are recorded in the history of the nation of Israel. He was a very important person. If the high priest had died, he would automatically be the one who would assume that responsibility until another high priest is appointed. He's really very, very senior in the nation of Israel. And Nicodemus also, which by accounts was the third richest person uh, in Israel at that time, end up going and asking for the body of Jesus and end up taking Jesus' body down off the cross. I mean, the whole of this situation is, is strange. I mean, the very act itself was going to effectively cause them to be excommunicated and lose their office. The Jews already said that anybody that was going to be involved with Jesus, they would be effectively cut off. And so... They, they know what they're risking by doing this. But interestingly, they're doing it for a dead Jesus. Not a risen Jesus. They don't know at this point that Jesus is going to rise from the dead. But at this point, they recognize that the one who has just died on the cross was somebody incredibly special. And they've come to that place of realizing, I, I believe, who he was. Well, they take Jesus' body down. They anoint him. And they put him in Joseph's tomb, so Joseph of Arimathea. And Pilate, again, is, is uh, happy to, to release the body. You know, you don't just walk into 10 Downing Street, but Joseph of Arimathea walks in to go and see Pilate. He's a very significant individual. Now, in Jerusalem, back in 1885, uh, British um, General Gordon discovered this tomb that you're looking at the picture there. It's just outside the Damascus Gate. Um, and a, this whole tomb in the area dates back to the time of Herod and Pilate and so on. Um, and there's a big, you can't quite see it there, but there's a, some of you may have been to Israel, you may have actually been there and seen this, but in front here there's a big trough where a stone would have been able to be placed and rolled along in front of this tomb that's there. Now it's quite interesting, you look inside it, um, when General Gordon uh, went in, when they actually found this and discovered this place, before they let anybody else go in, they actually started to take scrapings. They sent away, they analysed them, um, because they wanted to see if there was any remains of humans there, any kind of evidence of decomposition. And there wasn't. Nobody had actually decomposed in that tomb, which made it even more interesting, because we have a tomb that's been cut out of the rock. The other interesting thing is, if you look at it, that there was actually three areas within this tomb that theoretically bodies could have been laid. But only one of them was finished. The other two were still in the process of being carved out. The other two were never finished. 
which is very interesting. Why suddenly will we have this tomb carved out of the rock at great expense? And again, not partially finished, never ever used after that time. Well, I'm absolutely convinced this is the tomb itself, and for a number of reasons. One, I talked earlier about the situation with Abraham. This is a, uh, a map looking at um, the, the area of Jerusalem. You've got here what is today the Temple Mount and this area at the top, which is the peak. This is the highest point on this mountain ridge that's there. Okay, And this is the top. This is where um, the threshing floor of Ornan, this is where David uh, ends up um, purchasing that piece of land. This is where the temple eventually becomes built and so on. But... If we look at that, slightly zoomed in there, you've got the top here, this, this piece at the top, Golgotha as we know it, and this threshing floor here. Now if we overlay a map, or a photo rather, of Israel, just a satellite photo of Israel, um, we can overlay that, you can see that that is exactly the same area. Okay, So we've got the Golgotha up the top here, the Temple Mount. We know that this is the point from the Jewish perspective where Isaac would have been offered up. This is the peak, this is the Temple Mount. And once again, this is the Temple Mount here, the threshing floor of Ornan, where today the Dome of the Rock is. And then here, the peak, right at the top. Okay, and you can see here, this is a map. Typically, you'll find these maps in the back of your Bibles. Again, just overlaid onto that. And once again, they, the, you'll often find, that it says Christ tomb, stroke Calvary. Um, the tomb is just literally along the rock face from where Calvary is, from where Golgotha is and so on. So all of this, just there's no question that geographically this is the right location. We found a tomb. It fits everything that it should do. Just a couple of interesting scriptures. Back in Leviticus 4, it just talks about the offerings that were being offered. It said, And the skin of the bullock and his flesh, with his head and his legs and his inwards and his dung, even the whole bullock shall he carry forth without the camp. So this offering had to be carried outside of the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out. And burn him upon the wood. So this offering was to be offered up on the wood where the ashes are poured out and he shall be burned. The writer to the Hebrews also alludes to this. He says, For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest of sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let me just take you back to the map you'll see. This was the wall. This was the city limits. Jesus is outside the, the tomb, the Calvary where Jesus was crucified and then buried, is outside of the gate. All of these details fit exactly as the Bible says. Another interesting verse we find John nineteen seventeen, and he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. Now people suggest that because the rock face looks like possibly a skull, that's why it was called such. But, you know, a couple of thousand years of erosion could easily change the appearance. But this place, notice what John tells us, it's called the place of a skull. I think this is very significant, because note the name as well. You see, back in Genesis, you may be familiar with this scripture, Genesis 3, 15, uh, Genesis 3 14 and 15. The Lord said to the serpent, this is at the time of the fall, because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put an enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shall bruise his heel. So this is the prophecy of this war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, ultimately speaking of Jesus. You see, the seed 
Jesus, is going to bruise the head of the serpent. But the serpent is going to bruise the seal, the seed's heel. Just think also, we're not going to go for another tangent, this is all part of it. David and Goliath, a very familiar uh, thing in scripture, portion of scripture we're aware of. Goliath obviously is a type of Satan. He's the champion of the armies that are against Israel and so on. How did Goliath die? A stone pierced his head. Do you see the type there? You see, Jesus through scripture is referred to as a stone, the cornerstone and so on. And Goliath, this type of you know, Satan in a sense, is fallen because his head is pierced. What happened to the head of Goliath? That wasn't a question you were expecting, was it? Well, interestingly enough, I say interestingly, bizarrely, 1 Samuel 17, 54, David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But put the armor in his tent. Why would David do this? Now you've got two options here. And there, there's a slight divide amongst the pastors that I've spoken to and some scholars. You know, did David carry the head of Goliath around for a number of years until Israel conquered Jerusalem? That's a possibility. If he did, why? Or did he go up to Jerusalem shortly after he killed Goliath? And take and bury the head there at that point. Either option, somehow, some way, David takes the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. Now, again, at the time that David killed Goliath, Jerusalem belonged to the Jebusites. It wasn't in Israel's possession, it was enemy territory. So either he snuck in and did it, or it did later. Either way, it ends up there. Why is this significant? Why take the skull to Jerusalem? Well, because I believe God instructed David to do it. Why? Well, because the place where it was going to be buried was going to later become very significant. You see, we talk about this place, Golgotha. Where did it get its name? Goliath of Garth. The place of a skull. There's no coincidence in this. Back in Joshua, after one of Joshua's victories, it came to pass when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains and the men of war which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. See, symbolically, what was happening here, they were demonstrating their complete victory over the enemy by putting their feet on their heads. Effectively, that's what they're doing. And then, again, back in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Well, Jesus' heel, his feet were bruised, this nail put through. You see, the serpent was to bruise the heel of the seed, but the seed was to bruise the head of the serpent. We see it in type with Goliath, and we see it also acted out dramatically here. You see, in an internal declaration of Christ's victory, his bruised feet are right upon the head of the enemy. Wow. Verse 59, And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. He laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. Now again, this is just the expense of all this. He rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulchre and departed. I mean, people have asked the question before, you know, why would Joseph be so willing to give up a tomb that no doubt cost him so much? And, you know, if you'd have asked Joseph, he'd have probably said, well, it's just for the weekend. (laughs) Verse 61. And notice this. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulchre. So Mary and the other ladies are watching. They're seeing Jesus' body placed in the tomb. It's sealed. 
the stone is put in front of it, then they go home. That's all they know. They don't know any more at that stage. Okay, let's now move on. Because I want to look at the testimony of the Roman guards. Why is this important? You'll see. Now, the next day that followed, the day of the preparation, so we're now on the day uh, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said that while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day. I think Pilate's looking at these guys again. Are you serious? Lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, You have your watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and they made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now Pilate is granting them the authority to have this guard placed there. Now, there's a number of ancient documents. We have records in the Talmud and elsewhere, and we'll refer to some in a moment. But this watch that is placed there was apparently a royal Roman guard. It's made up of 16 highly trained Roman soldiers. Each of these soldiers would have had a spear, a short sword, and a dagger. Each man also had five javelins inside of a curved shield. Now, probably you've seen, maybe you remember back from school, the kind of shields the Romans used to use. Uh, And inside, clipped on the inside, they have five javelins. But the primary weapon, apparently, was a sling. And they were able... And they were trained to hit a target 70 feet away. And this was part of their, their training. These were an elite military group that were called into to play at this point. They were, if you like, the special forces of their day. So if a commanding officer came and found just one of those guards asleep, all 16, men, all 16 of the guards would be killed. So it really was a very kind of high-pressure thing. But these were supposed to be the best of the best. They'd have probably gone to Top Gun if they were pilots, you know, that kind of thing. So, so if one of them falls asleep, the other guards would have set the tunic on fire. Okay, so again, you're not going to stay asleep very long if that happens. So they knew their lives were at stake. Now, in 390 AD, and this is how we know some of this, um, as Rome was starting to fall apart, the then Caesar commanded a man by the name of Flavius uh, Veratus Ronitus. I mean, why would you do that to a child? <laughs> what was it like at school for him when they called the register? So he, he was an historian. Um, but he was told to, to search out the archives for military and tactical inspiration. Well, that's what he did. And he came across this information about this particular royal guard. And as a result, at the time, they reconstructed this elite unit as a way of trying to see if they could hold the empire together by having these people. So the tomb then was sealed. Now, we're told that it was sealed, um, that the pilot allowed them to seal it. Well, not just a stone put in place, but sealed either with wax or with clay. Now, you may be familiar with the way that Romans would seal a document and it'd be stamped. Well, it was exactly the same here. Um, by various accounts, it seems there'd have been at least four places where it had been sealed. In addition to that, ropes would have been put across the front of the stone with a Roman seal in the center. And of course, anyone then breaking the seal they were going to be under the wrath of Rome. And the punishment, if they were caught, was to be crucified upside down. Nobody's going to want to attempt to do this. Not when you've got this elite Roman guard standing by. And if they couldn't catch you, by the way, if you attempted to do this, they would crucify upside down every man, woman and child in your village. This is what they would have done to anybody trying to steal the body of Jesus. That tomb really was sealed and secure. You know, the suggestion 
that the disciples came and stole the body starts to seem preposterous. Bear in mind, they were frightened. They were hiding behind locked doors. And so we read, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulchre at the rising of the sun, and said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? Now notice at this point, they know nothing about the Roman guard. You see, it wasn't there when they left. They haven't been back since. And probably, if they'd have known the Roman guard was there, they wouldn't have even made this journey. There was no way they were getting into that tomb. And they knew nothing about the fact that it had been sealed. Matthew 28 verse 2 says, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and become as dead men. I'm going to ask you a question. How do we know this? The women aren't there yet. None of the disciples have been there yet. How do we have this record? Well, the only people that were there that could have seen this were the guards, the soldiers. So how do we have this information? You see, I I do believe that what we've got here is an eyewitness testimony given by those guards. But to who? Well, very interesting. Because in Israel, there were tax collectors, we're familiar with that, who would, some would stay in their office and do the paperwork from the office, but others would go out and go roundabout and so on, typically going around some of the rural districts. Um, And they would go typically to the public and collect taxes from the public. And so they became known as publicans. Because that's what they did, collected taxes from the public. Matthew was that type of individual. That's the job he did. He was a Jew, okay, and he effectively defected to Rome, so disillusioned by the spiritual climate of the nation. But this is what Matthew did. Now, as a servant of Rome, therefore, he would have always had a Roman soldier with him to stamp the authority of Rome on that which he was doing. He's collecting money for Rome. And that Roman soldier would have again had a shield and a spear to signify the authority of Rome. You see, the reality is that Matthew probably knew some of these guards personally. Matthew, incidentally, is the only gospel writer to tell us what happened at the tomb. Why? Because he knew the people that were there, I'm sure. You see, Matthew is the only one that tells us that an angel came down and rolled the stone away. He's the only one that tells us what happened in the discussion with Pilate. See, where did that information come from? Who leaked that? And Matthew's the only one that also records for us that the soldiers didn't go to Pilate when they fled the tomb, but they went to the priests. Again, the priests weren't going to give that information up. The only people that knew this information were the guards themselves. Again... Matthew would have no doubt known these. And of course, the information about the priests paying off the soldiers to keep quiet. Well, seemingly it didn't work. We're told, verse 11 of Matthew 28, Now, when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they're giving them this assurance that they're going to stand up for them now. You know, but this is just ridiculous. We told, so they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. 
Imagine being in a, a courtroom and saying, uh, Your Honor, it, it was the disciples. They stole the body. How do you know this? Well, uh, we were asleep at the time, and uh, <laughs> do you spot a problem there? Is it likely not at all? You know, these 16 trained soldiers around the tomb, this sealed tomb as well, each under the sentence of death if anything went wrong. They were there, of course, though, to stop somebody getting into the tomb. They weren't expecting somebody to come out. If anyone came and broke the seal, again, as we said, they'd be crucified upside down. They really weren't expecting this. And I'm sure the accounts that we have in Matthew's Gospel are eyewitness accounts of people that actually saw those events. And if you then records it for us. We're almost done. But I wanted to talk to you about the testimony of Pilate. You may or may not have come across this, the actor Pilati. The important testimony of Pontius Pilate being his official report to the Emperor Tiberius concerning the crucifixion of Christ. Let me just read some of the things, because this isn't just a, a, a recent fabrication. Justin Martyr, one of the early Christians, in his, this is, comes from this book actually, in his first apology for the Christians, which was presented to the Emperor Antonius Pius in the year AD 138, having mentioned the crucifixion of Jesus and some of its attendant circumstances, says, and that these things were done so, you may know from the acts made in the time of Pontius Pilate. So referring to this document that was in existence, certainly in 138, you see, this is something that Pilate had sent as a report of all of these things. I mean, you've got to think that all this going on, and the emperor is going to want to know what actually happened there, Pilate. Can you please explain? Tertullian as well, in his Apology for Christianity, that's a defense of Christianity, about the year 200, after speaking of our Saviour's crucifixion and resurrection and his appearance to disciples who were uh, ordained by him to publish the gospel over the world, thus proceeds, of all these things relating to Christ, Pilate himself, in his conscience, already a Christian. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Tertullian refers to Pilate, already a Christian, sent an account to Tiberius, then emperor. So another reference to this document that has been sent, not a, to, to corroborate or to support Christianity, but just a report of what took place. And this is fascinating because it's a report to Caesar concerning the events of the crucifixion and the alleged resurrection of Jesus. He details what happened regarding the crucifixion, the kind of man Jesus was, that Jesus had been granted freedom to teach the people, but that the wealthy people didn't like Jesus on account of his support for the poor. He also details the miraculous events at the tomb of Jesus, that a brilliant light was seen, that an angelic being appeared, that there was an earthquake, that trained Roman guards collapsed in terror, and they actually saw Jesus risen from the dead. This is in a document sent by Pilate to Caesar that right now is stored in the Vatican. This isn't the Bible, this is extra to the Bible, but it just corroborates everything the Bible says. Why would Pilate make any of that up? He's risking his own job to say these kind of things, unless he's got some solid evidence to back it up. And also records the fact that they were given money to keep quiet. It's worth having a look at that, that link online. Uh, you can go through, you can see this document, and you can read through, and it's fascinating, some of the things that it reveals. So all of this leads us to, really, our conclusion. In Philippians 3, verse 10 Paul there says, that I may know him, speaking of Jesus, and the power of his resurrection. What does that mean? What does the power of his resurrection mean? How does it affect us, or should it affect us? 
Well, Albert Barnes in his commentary says this. That is that may, I may understand and experience the proper influence which the fact of his resurrection should have on the mind. What he's saying is, if you understand that some 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead, that should change the way you think forever. He goes on and says, that influence would he felt in imparting the hope of immortality, in sustaining the soul and the prospect of death, by the expectation of being raised from the grave in like manner and in raising the mind above the world. He's saying that the power of the resurrection should be such that knowing it to be true, it would change everything, including the way you look at death. He concludes and says, There is no one truth that will have greater power over us when properly believed than the truth that Christ has risen from the dead. Now, that is absolutely true because... It is a life-changing thing. This is why Paul says that Christianity is based upon the resurrection of Jesus. Not something that we can't prove, but something that you've got to be willfully ignorant to turn away from all of this and say, oh, it didn't happen. What happened to the body of Jesus if he didn't rise from the dead? How do you explain those reports from the guards? How do you explain what Pilate said? Why is it that the Jewish leaders tried to buy them off? Now, the only explanation is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And bear in mind, too, that we had at least 11, and we know there were more with them, individuals that were locked away in hiding. They were terrified. You know, their whole lives had been turned upside down. The one they'd followed for some three and a half years had been killed. Their leader had gone. What was going to happen? Well... Suddenly, these individuals come out of hiding. They walk into the midst of the temple area and they start preaching about Jesus Christ, that he's risen from the dead. They start doing miracles and people are healed. Incredible things start taking place. So much so that the priests and the the leaders of the nation of Israel start beating them up and telling them, don't speak about this man. What do they do? They just carry on. A couple of weeks before this, they were absolutely terrified. Stephen, you read about in the book of Acts chapter 7. There we're told that he was stoned to death. He wasn't believing a lie. He was absolutely convinced that Jesus was risen from the dead. And you know what what Stephen was going on to say? Because he starts off talking about a number of people. That Joseph was rejected, but then exalted. He speaks about Moses, who was originally rejected but then comes back and he leads his people as deliverer and he's about to get to Jesus, who they've rejected and the chief priests do not want to hear what he's got to say because his conclusion was that Jesus Christ is coming back and they stone him to death. James, though, was beheaded. If all this was a fabrication, don't you think James, at some point there, as this sword or guillotine is about to fall on him, would have said, well, well, guys, okay, I'm sorry, I just made it up. You know, we've hidden the body in Peter's basement. It was just just a hoax. No. He willingly goes to his death, professing something that he knew to be true. Matthias, the one who ends up replacing Judas, is tied down and vultures at him alive. At some point during that process of being eaten alive, if you've got any doubt, you're going to say. But he didn't. Jude, also referred to as Thaddeus, was crucified and shot with arrows. Nathaniel was skinned alive and crucified. 
Do you see what the power of the resurrection does? These men did not fear death. Why? Because they knew the one who had defeated death. Death no longer presented a problem to them. I'm sure none of them wanted to go through with this. But they weren't afraid. Philip was hanged. Andrew crucified in Egypt. Mark dragged behind chariots until he died. Matthew flayed and then beheaded. Luke was crucified. James, son of Alphaeus, was thrown from the temple. Thomas, impaled in India, going out in his missionary journeys. Simon Zelotes was sawn in pieces. Peter himself crucified upside down. And Paul, we know, later beheaded in Rome. All of these individuals, not one of them, turned around and said, oh, okay, I'm not really sure this, you know, we're just going to, you know, Peter said that we had to go along with it. No, no, no. These are horrible deaths these individuals went to. Their lives really had been changed. They no longer feared death because, again, they knew the one that had defeated death. And so the final witness testimony, as it were, is of someone who's actually met the risen Jesus. It's me. I know Jesus. People sometimes challenge us and they ask us difficult questions we can't always answer. But I have no doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. That right now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to this earth. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to reign on the throne of David. Just as was promised by Gabriel to Mary. That's never happened yet, but it will. But the most important thing is that Jesus is the only one that can save us. You know, that question we looked at right at the start is the question that every one of us needs to answer. When Jesus said, who do you say I am? And tonight as you go home, that's the question you have to answer. You either come to that place of saying, yes, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Or you reject it. But if you reject it, please come up with some other explanation for all these things. I'll be interested to hear it, but looking at the people that have gone before you, that have tried, I don't think you're going to get very far. The smart thing to do is to bow the knee, because one day every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity this evening just to review these things. Lord, we thank you for your word that is just so complete. There is so much information, so much detail. But Lord, we thank you for the gospel, the good news that Christ has died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And now that anyone who puts their trust in Jesus will be saved. Oh Lord, we know that we are sinful. We know we need to repent. We cannot stand before our holy God unless our sin is addressed and dealt with. And there is only one person, your son, who has ever paid for our sin. So Lord, we thank you that there is a way. There is a way that we can be reunited with our Creator God, and that we can spend eternity with you. So, Father, please, this evening I pray, you work in the hearts of everybody here. Lord, if we are believers already, then, Lord, let this fact of the resurrection change the way we live our lives. We're no more fearful of death. We've got nothing to fear. All we fear, Father God, is you, because you are a great and awesome God. For anybody here this evening that doesn't know Jesus as your personal Savior, today is the moment of salvation. Don't put it off. 
At any time, you can just cry out to God right now and just say, Jesus, I repent of my sin. Please come and be Lord of my life. And you take one step into eternity. And it's as simple as that. Jesus, we thank you for these things. Please be with us as we go from here. And again, just impress these things upon our hearts, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.